Welcome to Filling the Well, a podcast created to nourish, provoke, and inspire artists and arts leaders. I'm independent journalist Marianne Combs. And I'm Leah Lem, citizen of the Malax Band of Ojibwe and community story sharer. On Filling the Well, we're talking to creatives living and working in rural areas, as well as Indigenous culture bearers. Today, we're going to hear from two Ojibwe artists who are working in close relationship with the natural environment. Birch Bark and Quill artist Pat Cruz and Water Walker Sharon Day. Um, so what I said was, uh, greetings my relatives. Uh, my name is Singing Wolf. I'm from the Martin clan. I'm an Ojibwe woman. I'm second degree Medewan, and uh, Medewanakwe is headwater women. That's Sharon Day. I recently sat down to talk to her in her office at the Indigenous Peoples Task Force in the Phillips neighborhood of Minneapolis. Yes, Sharon is amazing. Met her quite a few times, and the Indigenous Peoples Task Force does really important work in the community. Right. When I was there, downstairs staff were preparing a free lunch for clients, which smelled Mm -hmm. amazing. (laughs) The nonprofit hosts everything from HIV testing to youth theater programs. Mm -hmm. And in addition to serving as the task force's executive director, Sharon is an artist and a water walker. Uh, She explained to me that contemporary water walking got its start in the late 1990s. The chief of our lodge said uh, to us um, at that time, what will you do for the water? And so one of our elders, uh, Josephine Mendamin, um, she thought about that. And uh, one day she decided that she was going to move the water uh, because water has to move to be healthy and carry it um, with other women around Lake Superior. And so that was the beginning of the uh, water walks. I, on the other hand, when we were called to help at Camp Coldwater, was involved with that for about two and a half years at Camp Coldwater. And then from there, uh, walked with Josephine at the beginning of her walk around Lake Superior and then met her on the east side by Wawa and walked several days there. And that was the first time that that I had done that. And to my knowledge, in these contemporary times, Josephine was the first water walker. Wow. And you say it's to keep the water moving, to keep it healthy, but it seems to serve another role, too, in terms of awareness and and other things. Well, you know, um, this is what Josephine said. She said, I want the water to know that there are still human beings who love and care for the water. And uh, we, we believe that water is a living entity that it has its own spirit. And so when we're walking and we gather the water at the headwaters and we carry it, uh, we're actually speaking uh, to the spirit of the water. And if awareness gets raised at the same time, well, that's good. But that's not the intention. I'm I'm smarter than that. If I wanted to raise awareness, I would um, do some kind of campaign where I'd raise a lot of money and hire some people to um, do a, a, a campaign. But no, we are actually speaking uh, to the water. And like Josephine said, you know, we want the water to know that there are still human beings who love and care for the water. And no matter what anybody thinks, 
you know, it's not it's not the banks or the mining companies or the oil companies who are more powerful. Nothing on the earth is more powerful than the water. I love that. You are an artist. Do you consider the water walking a part of your artistic practice? I consider it a practice. Um, and if some art comes out of that, a song emerges, something that's 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 well and good. And songs have come out of it. We had an exhibit at Minneapolis Institute of Art um, a couple of years ago, the Tree of Peace. It was a collaborative effort with many. Um, you know, we found this tree that came out of Lake Superior floating, and we we hauled it home, and we, we made a tree. I invited people to send a leaf, uh, to create a leaf, and a, a message to future generations. And so people, water walkers from all over the country, did send that leaf, and the tree was like 14 feet tall, and it, I can't remember, well over 100 leaves, I think, that were on the tree. So sometimes you get inspired by something, and you create something, but, you know, that's not the goal. The goal is to really just to speak to the water. So it sounds like you have two different practices that sometimes overlap or inspire one another. Mm-hmm. Are there times when the art inspires the water walking in some way? I, I wouldn't say that, but I would say that as an artist, whenever you're creating something, whether it's a piece of poetry or a song or a tree of peace, the idea is is to communicate with some other human beings, right? To have something that will resonate with other people, either in the act of making it or, you know, lifting their voice or, I mean, that really is the intention, right? Is to, to communicate. That's beautiful. Um, and I guess the, the, the commonality between the two is sort of the resonating, that you're creating work that's resonating with an audience or you're resonating with the water in some way when you're doing the water walking and and communicating with it. I would say, you know, just even based on that last story, you have a particularly strong relationship with the land and with the water. You spend a lot of time in it. You're keenly aware of it. What have you noticed change over the years that you've been water walking? I think anytime you have a practice meditation, a ceremony, the more you practice, the easier it is to get to that place. And um, so I've been meditating since I was like 24, 25 years old. And I've been participating in ceremony for almost that long as well. You know, when you first start meditating, you know, like it takes a little while to get to that place, right? But the more you do it, the easier, the faster it is to get there. I led a water walk up in Ottertail County just a few months ago. And um, I had led a walk up there last year, too. Do you know that Ottertail County has more water per square foot than any other place on the earth? No. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And so I've, you know, walked with some of the same women up there for the last couple of years now. And this last walk was just so smooth. You know, it was just everybody got into the pattern right away. And it was just really, really beautiful. You know, so the more you do something, the easier you are to get to that 
that place of being sort of in tune with what's happening around you. You talk about getting into the rhythm and the chaos at first. So what what exactly happens on a water walk? What do they have to sort of adjust to? Well, for some people, it's silence. Um, when people are carrying the water, the staff ask them to be silent. And, uh, you know, most people today don't have any time of silence. Every minute from the time they wake up until they go to sleep, and perhaps even while they're sleeping, they're being bombarded by by sound via earbuds. I mean, you see people jogging along the Mississippi River Boulevard, and they have earbuds on. And it's like your body is getting some exercise, but your spirit not so much. And uh, so getting adjusted to silence, getting people in order. Sometimes on some of the shorter walks, there will be people, might be 30 people. This is how it goes, you know, because it's not just the walkers, but it's the cars because there are multiple vehicles, you know, have to hopscotch as well. And, you know, it's a, it's a lot. You know, lunch, sometimes dealing with media, on the longer walks, like, you know, where are we camping tonight? Where are we staying tonight? You know, all of the others, it's a lot. It is a lot. And I'm trying to imagine you having time in the water walk to actually take some time for yourself and think and be present. Is that something that you do? Yeah. I mean, I have my 15 minutes, too. You know, every time I carry the water, I'm, I'm, I'm silent. And those are the, the moments that you live for. Uh, was it line three? I think we were walking line three. And we're on this little road. And we've been sort of harassed along the way. But we're on this little road. And I was carrying the water. And there were these little black and white butterflies that were just like going in front of me. And I was sort of mesmerized by them. And then I heard a sound. And I looked to my left. And there was this beautiful white horse at this fence calling to me. And so when I handed the water off, the people who were following me said, like, that was so beautiful. That horse was in this far pasture, saw you, and came all the way up to meet you where, where, when you passed at that point on the road. I didn't see any of that. I just saw him when he called to me. So it's like those moments that you feel connected. When you think about connection to the land, and you also mentioned earlier the people who are going for runs with earbuds in their ears, I mean... What are the things that you wrestle with or think about a lot in terms of our land and our future? Uh, you know, the thing that that I worry about the most is that we don't have a connection uh, to the land. So we take care of the land, and the land takes care of us. We're given so many gifts from the land. And so it's having that reciprocal relationship with the land. I think that is so important. And I I fear that you know, most people don't have any connection to land. I think that is what I fear, is that, you know, we protect that which we love. And if we don't see the land and the water and the trees as being uh, living entities, but just something that we use, then we continue to abuse all of those things. I think the best thing um, that people can do is... You know, when you get up in the morning, uh, make a little offering. You know, have some moments of silence. And uh, go go for a walk in the snow, in the rain, just to be in, in touch with 
You know, there's we're just a small little speck in the universe, and yet, you know, we think we're everything. We are not. I wish I could be more hopeful, and I am hopeful, but change is not happening fast enough. Change is not happening fast enough. I certainly feel that sentiment, Leah. What are you thinking as you hear Sharon talk about our relationship with the land? Yeah, I think this is a really, really big topic of conversation that I don't want to say separates, but I am saying it, but like that indigenous versus colonizer attitude towards the land. And of course, you know, you don't have to be indigenous to have an indigenous value on the land and vice versa. So I'm not separating out the people, but kind of that perspective. So a lot of Mm -hmm. times, you know, with the introduction of colonization, settlers and um, assimilation, there was this, there is this and continues to be to this day, this view that water, that trees, that animals have like a price tag on them, have this quantified utility to justify their existence from our own perspective as humans. Like, as humans, we can place a value on something, and that's what it's worth. You're just saying that like water, its value is in relationship to how I use it. Its land, is in, its value is in relationship to how I use it, as opposed to having an inherent value of its own. Right. So a lot of times that colonizer perspective has people at the top of this pyramid where everything else is like subservient to Mm -hmm. the person, whereas more of an indigenous point of view is being a part of a circle, being a part of the environment, being in relationship with all of our relatives out there, all of our plant relatives, animal relatives, water spirit, all of that. So when we place a value on something, it's discounting our plant, animal, water spirit relatives. It's discounting their inherent value and value that they place on one another too. So for instance, I look at a tree as a commodity, not my cousin. Mm-hmm. So you can see how you can cut it down, make it into firewood, make it into a chair, make it into a board for your wood floor, and that's its value. Whereas it's an ecosystem for squirrels, for fungus, and it's sharing a root system with other trees um, and communicating with one another in, in that respect. It's a source of maple syrup. You know, it's all these things that goes far beyond what I, Leah Lem, or you, Marianne Combs, can get out of it by ourselves. Right. That's such a powerful point. And I I feel like Sharon lives this and exemplifies this in a really powerful way. Like, she's constantly thinking about her relationship to the land, our relationship to the land, and not just the land, but also the sky, as you hear her talk about this next project. This summer, I had this idea of creating a mound in the shape of the Big Dipper. You know, we believe that everything above is a reflection of what's below, and what's below is a reflection of what's above. And so there's so many stories about the the Big Dipper. 
and I was involved in a kind of a over Zoom residency called Dreaming the Land. And so uh, we moved six tons of dirt, hundreds of down trees we used for the berm underneath, and then five tons of um, fill soil, and I think it's 60 feet long, and then another ton of topsoil on that. And uh, we planted plants on it, and it's an exact correlation to where the Big Dipper is in August. And then uh, we found boulders on the land, and so there's a boulder where each star would be, and then a high-powered solar light next to the rock. And so at night it lights up, and we slept out there during the full moon in August, and about five of us. And, you know, it's, so I'm kind of thinking, like, maybe this year we might add a crescent moon But it really made me think about like our ancestors when they built these mounds that were so much higher. Like, how the heck did they do that with, you know, we had wheelbarrows, I had a truck, I mean, shovels. How did they do those? You know, the the serpent mound, we walked by that when we walked the Ohio River. We went there and had a tobacco ceremony, a pipe ceremony. How did they do that? I mean, that's... So incredible. And we passed so many mounds there. You know, one was 100 feet tall. And, of course, Cahokia. So impressive. Um, But a lot of my art these days is really more collaborative. You know, having an idea and then convincing people that they should help me do it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you have writing, you have theater, you have poetry, you have music, you have land installations i mean all you know the the tree creating the tree with the leaves sculptural i mean you're doing all the different art forms uh as an artist i'm also thinking about your work here and how you are serving people in need and dealing with the effects of both colonization and cultural loss and then you're doing this work that's environmentalism. It's the relationship to the water, the water walking. And then you have the art and how all of these things are intersectional in some way, how they they relate to each other. Do you think a little bit ever about the how each of these avenues connects with one another? No, no, not really. <laughs> I just, you know, like you just do, right? To do it is it's sort of like a theater ensemble. You know, everybody has a part, and some people are actors, and some people are writers, and some people are stage managers, and but it takes everybody, you know. And I don't know, just really fortunate, really fortunate. And I think, you know, one of the things I know is, you know, sometimes working with women of color on different things over the years. I don't know a person of color who doesn't want to leave a legacy, who doesn't want to make things a little bit better for their people in the short time that we have on this earth. And I think a lot of it, you know, also springs from, you know, like my faith, you know, being in the day when we have seven core values that we try to to follow and to be loving, to be kind, to be honest. Uh, to be humble, you know, to be courageous and uh, to to seek wisdom. You know, I often say it's it's easy to be Medewin when you're in the lodge, 
and everybody's talking about love and it's it's more difficult to do that out in the world but that's where we need to do it the most what do you wish people were paying more attention to beyond just having a stronger connection to the land well i think some of that's being involved in community whatever community that is i think the other thing that my dad always said to me was like you have to stand up for what you believe in because nobody will do that for you. So everybody, you know, whatever you believe, get educated about the topic and then do something, do whatever it is you can do. A technical question. If you walk Lake Superior, you will pick up the, a bucket of pail of water and you'll carry it around Lake Superior and then you'll put it back in. It's the moving of the water by human hands and showing it that love and attention that's what's so powerful and, and it for its health? Yes. You know, when we walked the Mississippi River and we gathered the water at the headwaters and we carried it, you know, like we gathered enough to, you know, make sure we had enough of the headwaters water because we could have replenished the pail all along the way. But the idea was to bring that water that was still clean enough for us to drink back in 2013 all the way I don't know what it's like today, but to carry it all the way to the mouth of the river and to give the river a taste of herself. This is how you began. This is how we wish for you to be again. You know, that's the that's the message. Now, in Lake Superior, you know, it's the same water all the way around, so we're not going to have to take enough to last for 30 days because, you know, we can replenish it from the water all along the way. But... Uh, on a river, it's different, you know, it's different because generally at the headwaters, you know, like where it's coming out of the earth or it's being filtered, it's it's cleaner. And then when you get to the mouth, the mouth of the river used to be a place where every all life went to for nourishment, you know, at the confluences of many of these rivers or the mouth. It's not that way today. You're listening to Filling the Well. I'm Leah Lem. And I'm Marianne Combs. I should mention, Sharon plans to reenact Josephine Wyndham's first water walk around Lake Superior this year. Mm -hmm. And these walks are entirely supported through donations and volunteer time. That's awesome. I can imagine the training that goes into this. Yeah. Oh, as she (laughs) talked about, it's like organizing so many people and, and resources. You know, it's so funny. Sharon... You know, as you heard, she does so much. She says she doesn't really think about the connections between her water walks, her community care, and her art. But she's right at the center of all of that. And it, you know, it's all connected through her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where we, again, we have this desire. And I say we as kind of this United States society, mm-hmm. um, wanting to place everything neatly into boxes or silos. Labels. Um, and Yeah, to label everything. Like, this is art because X, Y, Z. When art and culture go together hand in hand, it's just a part of living. It's not something we necessarily always have to seek out to create and to define as art. So... Sharon has this beautiful flow between art and culture, ceremony and prayer, and isn't performing these things. She's living these things. Her Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. is this 
art that we can see and appreciate and support as well. Beautiful. Yeah. It's really humbling to see the work that she does and how she does it and with her own humility, which is kind of mind-boggling based on what she, <laughs> all that she's doing. You know, working at the Indigenous Peoples Task Force, creating her own art and major theater or sculptural projects or poetry or mm-hmm. music, and then also engaging in these huge water walks that are very profound sort of water healing ceremonies. And I love the distinction of this practice as ceremony and prayer, but not performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Sharon performs as well. And there's a distinct difference between, you know, a, a play and this embodiment of art. Even as she said that it's, you know, putting on a water walk is kind of like staging a show, you know, <laughs> it's like you got your cast, you got your props, you got you to get everything together. So it's it's like theater, but it's not theater. Right. So I love hearing how water walker Sharon Day is living and embracing this relationship with the natural environment. And the person I talked to for today Birchbark and quill artist Pat Cruz is very similar. His artwork revolves around the environment. It depends on the environment. It gives back to the environment. So here's Pat Cruz. My name is Pat Cruz. Uh, my Ojibwe family name is Bijiki from Redcliffe to Mille Lacs. Uh, I do birchbark art. Pat Cruz was born in Oakland, California, and now lives on the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe's reservation. And he's a member of the Redcliffe Band of Ojibwe in Wisconsin and is a descendant of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe here in central Minnesota. And he's been working with birch bark for over 30 years. Pat is known for remaking these beautiful old-style Ojibwe birch bark and quill basketry. And he creates uh, just... <laughs> I, I want you to look at the pictures that I, seen, I, I took of yeah. his art. <laughs> and you can it's see them online on his website. Uh, but he creates these be- just beautiful ha- wall hangings, you know, 3D art from Birchbark. And he also teaches Birchbark basket workshops with students ranging from grade school to elders. My work is a lot of the old and the new at the same time mixed. So I tried to originally make things, you know, one of a kind and stuff like that. I started when I was really young, but of course I, I didn't have wheels and stuff like that. I, I went to culture classes and I did all them kind of things. And I made my first canoes when I was probably five years old. But then, um, you know, when we get teenagers and start messing around, I figure since I was 20, 1920. So I'm 52 now. So it's been 30 plus years, you know, mostly off off and on. I do construction also. These years, we recognize that the the climate is changing because of, you know, I'm a wild ricer. And the the more they clear cut, we notice the more worse it gets for the rice, like the more bad years we're having. Like normally, like 20 years ago, we were getting two, three, four thousand pounds a year and now we're getting a thousand or so or less. And that's not very good because I'm a pretty good wild ricer. But with the trees, it's also the same. Um, when they do take an area and they clear cut it, they don't plant back what was there. They plant other trees like popple and things that aren't very usable. 
You know, I mean, for us as natives, um, it don't matter whether you're natives, even uh, all kinds of colors use birch bark. And they just ain't being seen because, you know, they put that uh, 1990 uh, rule about uh, not being able to sell art that's not native made to, like, in you're not native to native stores and all that. So that was uh, part of it. But then uh, in the DNR and all them places, they don't consider the birch tree a value tree when it's hardwood. Uh, the cradle that I made, it, it's all birch bark, porcupine quills. Guess what the cradle's made of? Birch bark hardwood. Because I made sure that we use birch bark for it. So it's 98% birch bark and then quills 1% and then stitching the other 1%. So it's all birch tree, the whole thing. Birch bark is like, besides uh, all the other trees, of course, birch bark is one of the main things that are like culturally significant in, to the tribes because they use it as a boat, especially Ojibwe is the boat, the house, the cup the bowl, everything. Plus, there's more to the birch tree than everybody understood. They don't understand that there's chaga medicine. The roots are medicine. The leaves and branches are tea medicine. So the skin of the tree is medicine. So it's very important that you remember that birch trees is not just an art piece or a canoe or anything. It's also medicine. So it's very, very, very important to remember that. So much like our earlier discussion with Sharon Day, there's this propensity, this tendency to commodify nature. And Pat Cruz here is pointing out how significant our trees are, you know, as, as mm-hmm. an example of that. You can't possibly just say how much a tree is worth in dollars when it is life-giving, Yeah, when you hear Pat talk about it, it's so much more than like, oh, I need to appreciate the trees more. It's vital and so powerfully important, the role they play within the ecosystem. Whether or not I esteem them and view them as important to me, they have amazing value independent of that. It's more than just individuals taking a moment to say, oh, yeah, trees are cool. I love trees. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, all these beings in our creation story, came before we did. We're like the newborns. And they're they're taking care of us. And we uh, have a responsibility to take care of them in return. So it is wrapped into culture, this reciprocal relationship. And humility, mm-hmm. which is very uncommon in mainstream society, this idea of being humble before trees and animals and plants and the water and the land. Well, let's go back in time a little bit and hear how Pat Cruz got his start in birch bark art. A lot of my family from Leech Lake. So I got Leech Lake, Turtle Mountain, Red Cliff, and Mille Lacs are all my main tribes. That, that's where I'm from. I'm not just from one, yeah. right? Just because I have a band card that says Red Cliff, uh-uh. I'm from Leech Lake, I'm from Red, Red Cliff, I'm from like Malax and Turtle Mountain. Yeah. So is that, where does that put me? You know what I mean? As an Ojibwe, we're, we're free Roman people. We have always been that way. So I don't claim one as my own, but I live and love Malax. This is where I'm from. But I am a Red Cliff band member, right? So it's like, I, I don't, I don't want to like, claim one as I love the most, but Malax is where I made my life 
better life for myself. This is where I learned all these baskets. But I also learned how to make the beginning of Birch Park in Leech Lake. So I made the simple things. I didn't wasn't very good in the beginning, you know. I mean, it was you know it was hard to learn. There was a lot of uh, better people that were doing way better work than me. It took a long time to evolve into this. Um, I had teachings from my mother. She actually sent me to go learn birch bark. When I did, I brought it back, and when I was doing, she seen, um, wait a minute, you need to stitch it a little bit more than that. You need to. If you want to be seen more as an Ojibwe, you need to do it more like the old Ojibwe's. Make old stuff, put floral stuff on there and everything like that. So that's where uh, you see all these floral designs, the Thunderbird pieces, all the things I did. All became from my mom. She's the one that like advanced me and taught me to do it like that. Because it gives, I, I'm very light-skinned. My family's dark, like all, a lot of them are dark, but I'm the light-skinned of them. And it, it it does bother me that I'm not a dark like them. I want to be like them, dark like that. But I just, I am me. I'm like a birch tree, right? <laughs> I'm light-skinned. So, you know, <laughs> that's why I call myself the birch bark kid. My, oh. ma, my ma, ever since she's been a very visionary person, she said uh, that you're, you're not, like, not special like the rest of us that are darker or not so light. She said, you're like a birch tree. You're very special. It's like sacred. So all of us who are half-breeds or light-skinned or like that, we all probably feel the same way, but we don't mention that to people because we don't want to be like more looking like a white guy. You know what I mean? We want to be like Native American 100%. I was raised on a res. I ain't got no... Um, my ties are reservations, not the streets in Minneapolis or California where I was born. So I was born in California, brought to Minnesota when I was a little kid and raised on the res. Long time ago, my mom said that uh, we're going to be living here someday, boys. And we pulled up into the shores of Malax, and as you know, the old 169 used to be right next to the lake, right? So there was a pullover spot right down south here where there's a bridge. So we went swimming there, and she said, we're going to be living here someday, boys. And we were like, yeah, right. So years later, we ended up living in Mille Lacs, and we were, like, stunned because my mom told us that when we were little boys. But the special thing about Mille Lacs is from where I grew up, Leech Lake, it gets warmer here months earlier than Leech Lake. So we have access to all the things forest earlier than all the people up north, like Grand Portage, uh, Net Lake, all them places like that. Red Lake, all them are still got lots of snow on the ground, and we're actually getting... Access so, um, Malax is like perfect for a guy like me because there's a lot of rice. When there was a lot of rice, there's a lot of rice and not a lot of ricers anymore. So I have a benefit because of that because I have a lot of opportunity there. Like, it's too many birch workers. You know, there's a few, but there's not like predominantly. I do birch work like 24/7, so it's like my life. It's not a job. I never felt. Like it was a burden or anything to do it. Even even the biggest, giantest things, I actually love doing what I do. It's not like it's not like a job. It's a lifestyle. That's uh, you know, wigwas, birch park. It's life for me. You can really tell that Pat Cruz loves what he does. Mm-hmm. Pat is a very humble person, and his his home. When I visited, it it is full of. Art. It is full of his baskets. In fact, I showed up and he made me this birch bark canoe right on the spot. <laughs> he 
<laughs> he put it together right he's, then and there. He's prolific. Oh, totally. And and so he lives in this beautiful place right on the shores of Lake Malax. And at the same time, Pat Cruz was also caring for his mother, who was a fantastic person. And I got the chance to meet her while visiting with Pat. And she has since passed. So my heart goes out to Pat and his family. And through Pat's humility, you wouldn't realize how many awards and accolades he's earned and where his art is displayed. Pat was selected for the Native Artist in Residence at the Minnesota Historical Society in 2015. Big honor. And another really big honor was that he was selected for the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation Fellowship in 2016. And that's also a huge deal. He's out there helping others learn how to create birch bark art. He's creating it for himself. And we can also check it out, too, because he does have his art in museum collections in St. Paul at the Minnesota Historical Society and at the National Museum of the American Indian, the Smithsonian Museum there in D.C. Wow, that's impressive. Totally impressive. And where does he get this birch bark for all of this birch bark art that he's creating? Well, birch trees. But often those birch trees are on private property. And there's this continued conflict, this friction between our rights as Native people to access resources on treaty lands versus state property. So it's kind of tricky. So I'll let Pat explain more. I'm very fortunate because uh, a lot of times I do art shows and I meet like different people, people of different color, like white people. And they offer me, they like, they're friendly to natives and stuff. They offer me the opportunity to go get bark off their land. So most times I get my bark from these people. They give it to me. I try to give them art and they are so modest. I say, no, we don't want that. We want you to just to make the art, keep making this. Because it's, it's a storytelling thing. You tell a story with the bark that I'm making. You can tell the harvesting, how to gather, how to hunt, all that. So then there's all the treaty right areas that I get from there too, which we face problems in them places. Because uh, they say we're free to go to these treaty rights and we're free to go there and gather, but, but then there's gates on every road. So is that free? No, they're, they're, they're masters. Like we have to ask our masters to open the gate so we could go back there. And you know, the birch bark ain't right by that gate. It's five miles back in the woods. That's the number one reason why I don't like get a lot of birch bark from the state is because I don't like the fact that I have to answer to somebody like a DNR to go get what's family family been written into a treaty for way back in the 1850s and 1837. We're supposed to be able to do this without being accosted, without being searched, without being looked at, without being run our name, you know what I mean? And look through our car. And and it hasn't happened to me so much, but other people more, because maybe it's because I am lighter skinned. They just think I'm just a white guy, right? Um, but I've been very fortunate where I haven't had like a lot of trouble, but that does bother me that we have to I have to call a DNR and open this gate. So you're pretty much subject yourself to a search and seizure if 
if in fact you want to go harvest so if they see like uh i know like people like uh other ojibways like me we go i don't just do birch bark but i harvest like medicines like swamp tea and uh, root and wintergreen all these other different kind of chagas and stuff like that and to to have a gate in your way you have to walk five miles back just to get to the medicines too also can you imagine that? I have to call someone to get into access to a land that's already ours in a treaty right that says we should be able to go there. And you know how disturbing that is? So we are not free. We actually have to answer to someone else. So that's what I feel about that. I don't, and I, and it's not just me. I, I feel for other people who don't, who don't uh, understand why that gate's there. It should never be there. So imagine, uh, imagine going and picking uh, all these medicines that your ancestors go there for hundreds of years, and then all of a sudden uh, they take a, a big machine and go in there and clear cut the heck out of it because they've seen natives gathering swamp tea in there. I mean, they literally wait till the winter comes, it freezes solid, and they go in there and clear cut the whole thing. It is a, a, the most aggressive thing to a native person to see that. Now, you know, we're, it's, people will say, Oh, it's selfish. You're thinking only about you and your people and the harvesting. Them forests don't belong to us. They're full of bear, deer, wolf. They're not ours. They're theirs. And them are the only place, last places where these animals are. Wonder why there's bear problems in our neighborhood. Wonder why there's uh, chronic wasting disease and all the other things like that. Because there's uh, they're baiting these deer and they're doing all that. They're creating these things. So we are like nature protecting nature. They think we're we're tree huggers and we're water protectors and they can put these labels on us. Uh-uh. We're nature protecting nature. God, I love that. Ooh, Pat. Pat is speaking truth here. And I don't mind words like tree huggers and water protectors because yeah. those sound good too. Like I go hug a tree, <laughs> I'm fine. But that's this question of why is it a radical thing, a radical action to protect your relatives? So I would die for my child. Uh, yeah. This is analogous to how we relate to the environment, how we relate to our forests, our water. They are family members. And the fact that you know, coming from my white colonizer upbringing perspective, I mean, I absolutely see the value in protecting water and in protecting trees and keeping the earth clean. But I see it very differently when I try and adopt the practice of being a relative of the tree, of thinking of the water as my relative, thinking of the birds and the plants as my relatives who don't necessarily have a voice at the legislature or who don't have a voice to to fight back against an industrial sector. It becomes a much more, I don't want to say primal, but like gut-level feeling of urgency and caretaking and empathy that wouldn't exist otherwise. Absolutely. All right, let's hear more from Pat. When they clear cut, in Wisconsin, they do this more. They say, well, we're clear cutting this area, so all the natives that want to harvest well goods out here, whether it's birch, cedar, the roots from the spruce roots and all of them, they don't say, hey, and advertise that to each native community and say, here's a chance for you to come get this bark before you clear cut it. 
They don't do that here. So not only do the animals suffer, but the natives who use that material suffer because they go back and they don't realize that. They're going, oh, we're going to go get this stuff. And you get out there and the whole forest is gone. And it takes 100 years, 75 years for it to grow back. It ain't enough time for us to, as a as a nation to wait 75 years to go back to a place where possibly the medicine will grow. Besides that, we're, we're, we're not so much about us. It's about the animals, too. So there's no place for birds to perch, no place to, you know what I mean? There's, it's not the same. It's just not the same. And this includes the porcupine, which Pat Cruz cherishes in his artwork as well. They love birch. They love all these. They love all, especially birch. They love the, the buds and stuff on her, especially in the spring. But I pick quills off the dead ones. But I also know how to get them off the live ones. Of course, you don't get that much off the live ones. But I've used, matter of fact, I got a whole bin of them right there. There's enough. There's a whole porcupine in that bin right there. So I make sure to use that. I waited till I became more red road type. I don't drink, I don't mess around with that hard drugs or anything like that. So I waited till later to actually do that because I didn't want to mess with any of that sacred stuff unless I was absolutely close to being sober and straight for years. Mm-hmm. And that's why I do quill work now. We've lost many to all them same things because, uh, uh, matter of fact, most people probably went to them things because there was nothing for them to do natu- naturally because there was no woods to harvest. There's no things like that. We don't know why people fall into them things, and drugs and drinking are like two of the main things, but also loss of nature, loss of cultural identity. All of them are hand-in-hand with each other, and you don't think so much about that. This is such a significant point that Pat Cruz is making here. Mm-hmm. He's pointing out the relationship between the disconnection between ourselves and the environment, this loss, this mourning, this trauma, and how that relates to substance abuse in our communities. How it's mm-hmm. like a, a way to try to numb ourselves to trauma. So I just wanted to make sure that we took a moment to acknowledge what Pat says there. So let's let him continue. I'm not a person of money and wealth. I'm a person of nature and living good as possible while we have life to live. I ain't trying to be uh, like higher than anybody. I want to be equal. You know what I mean? We were trying to be, we, we don't claim to be some kind of big shot. Thing. We don't, we're, we're trying to keep it humble at the same time. I'm just a regular birch barker doing a little bit different than everybody else. And I don't want to be anything more than just a birch barker. I am no uh, like king or anything of these things. You know what I mean? I'm very fortunate because uh, I call it desperate res kid stuff. Because we were very desperate. It was easy to fall in them traps with the drinking and the drugs and all that. So I was very desperate to find something other than them things to teach my kid a future, teach my people a future for our longevity instead of destruction, right? Birch Park is the most truthful thing a person can do is to work on your culture, right? To learn your language, to to learn the baskets, to make the moccasins, to do the beadwork, following your ancestors' footsteps a little bit. You know, you don't have to be good at all them things. You just have to find something that fits you as a person. Because a long time ago, 
we all had trades. One person was a great hunter. One was a good fire starter, and one could do beadwork really well. So that's what I do. And what Pat Cruz is saying here is so true. We each have skills and abilities and gifts to bring to the table when we're living in a collaborative community. It's this notion of sharing what we have, giving freely of what we have for all of our benefits. We don't need to hoard. We don't need to sock things away, but instead live that good life in a reciprocal, collaborative, sharing way. And yet he's an artist who needs to make a living, too. Yep. So he's a part of this community where he brings his art to us. And in return, either we buy it, appreciate it, or I brought him some coffee. (laughs) You know, we all kind Mm -hmm. of have this way to give and take from one another. And to honor each other in a way that's more meaningful than just money necessarily. Mm Mm-hmm. And Pat Cruz applies this reciprocal relationship with nature to his art by making sure he does this work in a sustainable way. There have been times where I've had like 200 sheets of birch bark because they're clear cutting it. They're going to use it for firewood and they don't want the bark. And that's fine. So I grabbed whatever I could. Most of it was rough. Some of it was not usable. But there was a whole bunch of it that was. And I've actually shared that birch work with multiple places, multiple people that asked for some. So besides using it all, I've always shared, you know, because I knew it was important. I didn't want to like be like, oh, I'm like hoarding it. Like a squirrel. (laughs) I shared it. So I teach, uh, that's why I teach the classes. I was able to share some with them. And I was able to, like at the museum, I make baskets. Or there's other people that make Christmas trinket or do cool work or anything like that. Um, I share with them too. Mm -hmm. It's important to learn from somebody that that actually has skills with working with the tree. And uh, how to peel it, uh, you actually check the depth of each tree because each tree has different thicknesses of skin. So some older ones, you think that the, th- the skin would be like really thick, but it's actually paper thin. So you can't just go and cut the line in it right away and then, and then start peeling it because you have to actually check the depth of a tree. And you'd be surprised, a big old tree, you'd think the bark would be really thick, but sometimes it's paper thin. So each tree you peel, you have to check that depth and you got to pinch the blade and make it that depth because you don't want to hit that candoom layer in the middle between the hardwood and the skin. You could try not to cut too deep into that. It's very important. Another thing I didn't get to mention is about the birch tree is not only does it give you all these things, but you can, like maple, you can tap that tree, but you got to be careful because you could kill it. You got to do it in the right way. You got to put tobacco down and pray for that. And you got to learn from people that know how to do that. I don't mess with that kind of stuff too much with tapping a birch tree, but I but you can also make maple like maple syrup out of it. It's just a little different taste, but it's really good. I mean, you can literally get a tree. The tree will give you clean water, in in a, and even in the areas where there's rainy seasons are coming. So it's kind of amazing like that. The birch tree has so much more to offer that people don't know. All the trees I I peeled, I uh, I actually uh, prayed that the trees forgive me for taking these things to survive, to live off of. Because that's the last thing we want is to insult nature because nature is stronger than any human. It's here, it's gonna be here long after all of us are gone. 
um, trees will be here longer as long as they don't clear cut them all and desolate this planet. But each and everything that's here on this earth has a spirit, including animals, trees, fish, all. And that's what main society is missing, is that the, these things, water, trees, birds, animals, all things, grass, all have spirit. And to take them things, there's repercussions with that if you don't honor them. We really wish people would see what we've seen and wonder why we fought so hard for this land to the last Ojibwe dang near to uh, make sure our culture is alive and make sure that we're trying to do these things because the trees and us are hand in hand. We need them. They need us. And there is no getting away from that ever. We are here to do that. We're here to speak of them things. We're here to teach them things. Absolutely. And I just want to add to what Pat is saying here, that we as Indigenous people, keeping our connection to our land, to our culture, means that we are surviving and thriving. We are here forever in the face of it all, in the face of colonization and assimilation. Shoot, Mm. we are here and we're going to continue to be here. I got bad news for the colonizers. There's a bunch of us that are sober, and we're living that good life. Everyone that's like that, all my artist friends, I appreciate every one of them, because they're doing the same as me. We don't get to meet all the time. We don't get to hang out. But they're doing the same as me. They're working every day to make sure that they stay to that road. Right? It's important. It's a good thing. So... That's why I said we don't get to meet good people a lot of times because we're so immersed in what we're trying to do for our own families that we can't literally meet like this. So I appreciate that you came to my house. And I appreciate being able to go to Pat Cruz's house, beautiful spot there on the shores of Lake Mille Lacs. God, it's so wonderful to just look outside to see trees and water. What an inspiring spot. And Pat's humility, his care for his community and the thoughtful way that he approaches art. I'm a huge fan. He has a new fan and that fan is me. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, I'm I'm equally in awe of Sharon Day who mm-hmm. just made me realize just the awesome power of one individual mindfully going about their way in the world and you know, focusing with care on relationships and taking care of needs where she sees them meeting those needs. And whether it's caring for the people in her community, whether it's caring for the water, whether it's caring for her own self and and the art that she makes and, you know, tending to her relationship with the land around her really left me inspired to be more mindful and more present in the way I go about my work every day. You've been listening to Filling the Well. I'm Marianne Combs. And I'm Leah Lem. Tune in next time when we talk about the Indian Arts and Crafts Act with two Native experts. This podcast was produced and edited by Emily Goldberg and mixed by Eric and Amanda Romani with original music by Damien Strange. Filling the Well is a podcast of Arts Midwest, amplifying the power of Midwestern creativity. Find out more at artsmidwest.org.